let's close our eyes and pray. Heavenly Father, I'm just struck here as I'm seeing God with the sense of your favor on us as a group, as a church. Thank you for the spirit you've given us of unity, of fellowship, of respect and love and charity towards one another, Father. And Lord, I'm also just, just so thankful, God, to everything you have been doing in this conference. The way you've been making people's hearts receptive, the way you've been working and leaving through so many people's stories as they interact with one another. Nothing, Lord, we found a place and we prepared and we prayed as much as we could, Father, but, but you brought this, you made this happen, God, and we thank you. Even when we were faithless, God, you were faithful to us. Thank you, God. Lord, as I, I speak on this last session, trying in my own inarticulate ways to synthesize everything and pull all these different sessions together into a coherent takeaway driven, God. I'm just, I feel inadequate, God. I feel nervous. I feel just not up to this task, God. And so I just pray that you, any words that coming from you, Lord, you just stop up in my mouth. And that you just only allow to come out what you truly God. All glory to you, Father, help that always to be as important for our minds. You just say my word. Alright, everyone. It's good to see you guys all. Uh, is it anyone feeling a little tired right now? Raise your hands if you are. Okay, good. Because I really like what Noah said earlier. If you are tired, it's good to be aware of it. I'm tired. Sharing that with you guys. I'm trying my best to be up, uh, trying my best to be awake, and please make a little, try to uh, you know, just give a little bit extra effort to pay attention, even though you are tired, because I do think that this time will be valuable that we spend today. And, and again, I just want to praise and thank God for being so faithful to us this past weekend. One of the things I've been constantly sharing with the other leaders is that if we are really going to be gospel-centered movement like we've been saying we want to be in North America, if our mission as a church, if what we want to do is to bless North America, not just be an internal club, but to actually be a blessing to our neighbors uh, and hand that down the deposit of faith to our children and our grandchildren one day. If that's our mission, then ownership of this church cannot belong to the leaders alone, and it can't, definitely can't just belong to the adults. It has to belong to all of us. This is all of our church. We can begin, and the thing about that is, we can organize, we can strategize, those are all good things, those are uh, abilities and gifts from God, and celebrate that, but the only way this thing is going to happen is organically local church by local church, one of the 29 congregations, in relation person to person. And we can't uh, manufacture that, we can't take that, we can prepare and pray, that's it. The rest is up to God, and so we wait, we wait on God to send down his blessing on us, to rain his blessing on us. He gives, we receive. We wait on God to meet with each one of us and call us to his mission. That's really what we're going to be talking about today. Everything we've done up to tonight has been geared toward trying to provide opportunities through the communion worship, through the missions presentations, through the Bible studies and praise and worship and workshops and fellowship and fun and hiking and testimony nights and 
uh, couch conversations, all of it has been operating as a spirit of ground to provide us with a sacred space to meet with God and to have a sense of His presence. Because that's the game changer. Because we need to be assured that He is with this church. And we need to be assured that the gospel beats at the heart of our community. Because we're a doubt of people. And we need to be assured personally. And we can only be assured that we're not just spinning our wheels, we're not just wasting our time, we're not just building sandcastles for our own glory that's, that are going to wash away with the tides of time unless we know that God is showing up. And so I just want to praise God for showing up being here with us. In so many ways, they can swap in plenty of the conference to every single session and conversation and interaction to this moment now. We can trust that God is present. And because God is present, I know that even now he's calling each one of you here to his mission. To his mission. And that's the focus of this last session. I know it's the title of the Gospel and Suffering that's a little bit complete. It's the Gospel and Suffering for the Sake of the Kingdom. But really, the gospel and mission is another way to think about it. It is a call, what we want to talk about is the call to each one of you to join the mission of the church, which is God's mission, to announce and embody the gospel message that in Christ God has acted to reconcile the world to himself. I think a few people have referred, um, either in a conversation with me or maybe even in a session, to the vision document that several of us new leaders, not just me, but several of us, put together last year and presented before the CSI Council. It's online on our uh, website, and I can post a link on, on the Facebook page and stuff if you guys want to check it out again. Uh, but I'm going to quote it here because this is our understanding, the way we phrase it, of the mission of our church. The mission of the church is to first worship the triune God, declare to the world the assured reality that the kingdom of God will one day come to the world in full power and demonstrate in the present the inbreaking reality of the kingdom. Mission is at the heart, purpose, and identity of the church. Our mission is to demonstrate and declare the gospel of Christ the Lord, to hold out to all nations of the world the possibility of reconciliation and resurrection life. And it's with that understanding of mission in mind to announce and embody the gospel of Jesus Christ, that I want to turn to our scripture portion for this evening. So please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 18, starting with verse 18, and then into chapter 2, verse, up to verse 10. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 18, and then into chapter 2, ending at verse 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of the sage? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached Save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of no worth. But God shows the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God shows the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God shows the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become to us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. So first, I just want us to glean from Scripture that to pursue the mission that we have been called to, we have to first announce the gospel, and second, embody the gospel. I think those are two uh, good points we can take from this passage. We have to announce the gospel, and we have to embody the gospel. That's our mission. And second, uh, the way I'm going to structure this talk, by the end, I'm going to close by calling you personally to commit to this mission. Actually, it's not me calling you. God is calling to commit to this mission. And I want to be clear that this call is a call to pick up your cross. There is resurrection on the, promise, on the other side, I promise you. But if you want to commit to this mission, specifically this specific church in this specific time in North America, then this is a call to enter into suffering. And there won't be fruit that's born. But this is a call to enter into suffering and sacrifice. This is a call to take up pain. And I hope by the end of this session to encourage you to take a leap of faith with all of us together, all of us taking a leap of faith together, and to walk out in obedience to pursue this mission for North America that I believe God is really calling this church to. So first, announce the gospel. How do we announce the gospel? Well, first, to announce the gospel, we have to know the gospel, right? We've been talking about that all weekend. Multiple times in this passage, Paul refers to the gospel, though he never uses the word gospel. He calls it the message of the cross in verse 18. He calls it the testimony of God. Right? He the in verse 39. The testimony of God, I really like that. I think that's a great lens through which you can view the gospel. It's God's self-disclosure of himself. It's his revelation of the gospel. Just like you and, and Stacey shared their testimony last night on the couch, uh, the story of the gospel is really God's testimony. It's a revealing of his heart. Like some said yesterday, one, one good way to look at it is that the gospel is God's condition, our condition, and God's response. And the message of the cross, verse 18, is at the heart of God's testimony. The cross is at the heart of his substance. The heart is at, at, at the, the cross is at the heart of God revealing who he is to us. And so what is the message of the cross? These two passages of scripture absolutely key to help us understand uh, the message of the cross. First is Philippians 2, verses 6, 6 to 11. Who in being Jesus, who in being, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God 
something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming a human death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So please understand, please track with me what scripture is saying here. Jesus Christ was one, is one with the Father and the Holy Spirit, three persons in one God, and he had every conceivable privilege and blessing imaginable, and yet still he emptied himself of all his privileges. He divested himself of all his royal prerogatives and took the form of a human being just so he could dwell with us. We could not touch him, so he came down to touch us. That's the pursuing, overwhelming, almost reckless love of God that we've been singing about, right? God emptied himself of his divine privileges to chase after us because we could not approach him. And Jesus came not as a pretend human being, not as a fake human being. He came fully God and fully human, with all human weaknesses, human temptations, and human frailties. And yet, whereas we disobey God on even the slightest, smallest, tiniest things, Jesus obeyed the Father totally, even to the point of death on the cross. That's what Philippians 2 was talking about right there. Understand this, Jesus' life was an entire act. His entire life was a perfect act of pure, unadulterated worship. This is, that's what we were created to be. We were created to be eternally worshiping the Father. But because of the fall, we can never fulfill that. We can never worship God selflessly, perfectly. But Jesus did. Everything he did was in tune with the Father. Even his death on the cross was a sacrifice on our behalf. And with that, that Jesus freed us who believe. This church of, gathered, of believers gathered here even now in this room from condemnation. Jesus freed us from condemnation. He freed us from the wrath of God. And he removed us from the dominion of the devil and transferred us into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Uh, Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 5.21 uh, much more succinctly this way. It's what's written on our church, uh, our church right? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's at the very core of the message of the cross, which is at the heart of the gospel. That's what we're wearing on our shoes. Jesus' death on the cross was as our substitute. He became a sin offering for us so that we, we could be made clean and set apart as holy, and now used for God's purposes. It's because Jesus Eternally, God, who became fully human for us, went to the cross to rescue us from the curse of death, that God raised him from the dead and then exalted him as the risen Lord of all creation. And one day, one day, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. That's the testimony, that's the self-revelation of God. And the cross, the message of the cross is at the very heart of it. The man hanging from the tree whose last words as he was dying was to forgive his enemies. That man is the resurrected Lord of the universe. That's the gospel. And everything in the world is different if you believe that. Now, if you believe that, you have new eyes through which to understand and see and perceive everything that has happened. Someone else might see one event and think, 
and interpret it one way, but now if you have gospel eyes, if you believe the gospel, you see that same event and understand it totally different. And the gospel, and that's what we've been talking about in, in limited ways, in the, in the limited amount of time we've had. We've talked about how the gospel transforms our worship to worship in liturgy. Now it's not religion, it's actual worship, it's actual communion with God. Uh, we talked about how the way the gospel transforms our marriages, our work, even our human development and psychology. Uh, and part of the reason we spent so much time in the mornings with the inductive Bible studies is we wanted to show you how that same gospel message with the cross at the heart of it can be preached in different ways to different cultures in a manner that would most suitably get them to understand what the gospel is all about and why it's good news, why, why just saying the phrase Jesus is Lord can seem so empty, right? But if you preach the gospel in a way that speaks to the culture, it's good. You can show the culture why it's good news. And that's part of what we have to learn before to announce the gospel. Uh, and so that's actually what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians as well. So I'm going to read again 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 25. Just highlight that section for you guys. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. So this is the same point as we talked about today in the inductive Bible study. You guys remember? Uh, Jews demand signs of power, and Greeks are looking for wisdom. If you remember, we, we recognized during our inductive Bible study time, especially this morning, that different cultures have different cultural items, right? Uh, every culture trains us, teaches us to value certain things in a hierarchy, to put this over that, this, and this is the ultimate hierarchy. Uh, and, and that ultimate power, it's that ultimate value in the hierarchy could be called a cultural idea. It's, a culture, it's something that the culture teaches us to think of almost as, as a God, as a God that blocks our view of the true God. And for the ancient Jews, they were longing to be rescued from evil. Because if you know Jewish and Israelite history, they were people who from day one were oppressed. Right? From Egypt to Babylon to Greece and Rome. Always laboring almost for so much of their history, except for Greek periods under David and Solomon, for so much of their history, either under foreign occupation or the threat of foreign occupation. And so they, what the Jews longed for, above all else, was power. Power to have their own land. With enough, with enough power, they could drive out evil and restore Israel. And for the ancient Greeks, they were longing for meaning to life. And so the thing they valued above everything Wisdom. They wanted to know what it meant to live a good life. With enough wisdom, they could know that. Uh, both of those longings were not wrong. We're not bad. I think Ashley actually made this point uh, in, in the morning. Idols don't necessarily have to be a bad thing. Sometimes they're good things. But they become idols when we make them ultimate things. Uh, it's not wrong to long for an end evil. It's not wrong to long for wisdom. But when we put, elevate those longings above trusting God, they become bad. They become 
The reason we studied Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 17 in such depth is because we wanted to show you how the apostles announced the same gospel to different cultures, and in so doing, totally blew up the cultural idols. We saw that first in Acts chapter 2 when we were studying Peter preaching the very first gospel message to the Jews, right? Peter helps his Jewish audience understand, through quoting Joel, through quoting Psalms, that in their pursuit of power, they killed their own Messiah, the very person who was supposed to rescue them. And in so doing, they revealed themselves to be even more firmly in evil's clutches than they had noticed. So that what looks like weakness to the Jews, the cross, was actually God's strength. That's God's power. His way of rescuing them, even when they were so hopelessly lost in the grip of sin and death. We also saw that in our study of the ancient Greeks, Paul, in Acts chapter 17, when he's talking to the Athenians. He's trying to help them understand that by pursuing so many different ideas about the purpose of life and what, what a good life looks like, they had ended up actually hopelessly confused to the point where they had built even an altar to an unknown God. They're chasing after any, like, they're looking to every nook and cranny to find meaning. And this is revealing that they, they've lost confidence that life has any meaning at all, which was happening at that time in the culture. And so what looks like foolishness to the Greeks, proclaiming a man who has returned to life from the dead, is God's wisdom to show to us that the purpose of life is not found in philosophy. Wisdom is not found in any kind of philosophy, but in a person following Jesus. Both Paul and Peter knew that in order to announce the gospel, they not, they not only need to know the gospel, they also need to know the culture that they're in. That's kind of the point I'm trying to, that's, that's the case I'm trying to lay out to you. You need to not only know the gospel in order to announce the gospel, you need to be sensitive to the culture you're in and be aware of the cultural idols of the people you're preaching to and discipling in order to know how to speak the gospel in a way that confronts and removes the idols of the heart so that Jesus Christ can take his place there. So if we're going to embrace the mission of announcing the gospel, we need to know our culture. And answering that question for us as second-generation Indian Americans and Indian Canadians is complicated. Because we need to be aware of what the American and Canadian cultural idols actually are today, as well as the immigrant Indian cultural idols that we you know, sort of imbibe from our parents. That's why we did that exercise together before we dismissed for lunch. We need to know that the obsessions with fame, status, celebrity, image presentation, reputation, the American dream, Sex, money, and power. These are all idols that are crowding our heart. Our heart is like the city of Athens, really. It's full of idols. And we need to be prepared to preach Christ crucified, to destroy those idols. That's the only thing that can solve the idols of the heart. The Spirit coming in when the Word of God is preached, when Christ crucified is preached. Because if our ultimate value is not God, every other ultimate value, every other idol is going to fail us. It's going to let us down. And questions. The Bible shows us that Jesus provides us with what we are really longing for. Jesus provides us with true rescue from evil. He provides us with the secret to living a good life. All of our longings are truly and perfectly met with Him. If only we would trust Him. And that's our fundamental problem. From the Garden of Eden today to today, that's our fundamental problem. We do not trust that our deepest longings and desires would most fully be met in God. Because we don't trust fundamentally in our hearts that God is good. We may believe that He exists, 
We may even believe that he is sovereign, that nothing happens without his permission, but we don't trust that God is good. Um, and to preach Christ crucified is to preach that God himself went to the cross to take the punishment we deserve so that we may inherit his riches, as Linus was reminding us today, just because he loved us so much. To preach Christ crucified is to show, is to say that by suffering for us, Jesus birthed a new kind of world. It was a labor of love. If there are any mothers here, uh, I think they probably know and recognize this better than anyone else. For the joy set before him, Jesus suffered mockery and abuse and torture. And what was that joy? He already had the Father. He had the Spirit. He had the Heaven. What else was there for him? What was the joy set before him for which he suffered all these things? It was us. It was you, sanctified, glorified, you, beautiful. The joy set before him for which he suffered was you. Preach Christ crucified that is to preach that God truly is good. God is good. So maybe you are enslaved today by the idol of performance. Uh, many of us were or are still are. You believe that your life only has meaning if you achieve this or that. Only when I attain that degree, only if I get that job, then I'll know that I have that I am something. That's an idol. Um, you know, Stacy was mentioning during her testimony the other day. You know, graduate from school at 25, married by 26, age by 28, that sort of thing. Well, we all kind of have those timelines. But sometimes they can turn into idols, right? When we don't meet those things, either you meet those standards you set out for yourself, and then you become kind of a jerk. You, you, you become inflated with pride and you start looking down on other people. Or you don't meet those standards of performance, and your spirit is crushed. You don't know how to recover. Either way, the idol has won, and you've been destroyed. Now, the gospel of Christ crucified freed you from the idol of performance. Your identity is not based on your performance or anything you do or earn or achieve. Your identity is based solely on the fact that you have been united to Jesus. So that now, no matter what happens, when you know that when God looks at you, he pronounces, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. In them, I love peace. And you enjoy the eternal positive part. Now you don't have to live for the idol of performance or other people's expectations of you or the approval of anyone. Not even the approval of yourself. You only live for the approval of God, which you already have as a free gift in Christ. And once that declaration comes to the very center of your being, once it, once it sinks to the depths of your heart, Paradoxically, now you actually can truly perform. It's weird. But now the, the performance isn't anxious. And it's not self-glorifying. It's God-glorifying. The motivation is totally different. And you're serving your name. Or maybe you're struggling with the idol of freedom and control. And I think a lot of younger youth I've met really struggle with this. The idol of freedom and control. You want to be free to make your own choices as you see fit. You want to be the captain of your own ship. You want to be the master of your own soul, as the poem that Vita says. You want to call the shots. The idea of giving up your autonomy and surrendering to something greater than yourself kind of terrifies you. Because what if he tells you, what if God tells you to do something you don't want to do? Either you gradually realize as you grow older in life that you just don't have enough information or wisdom or capacity really to make 
the best decisions in life, and therefore you become a person who's paralyzed with indecision all the time, or you remain ignorant to that reality. And uh, you just plow ahead making mistake after mistake in your own overconfidence, hubris, uh, in your own place, and therefore you will that you become a fool. The gospel of Christ crucified frees you from that idol of freedom and control. God's plan is infallible perfect, and we can trust him. God has a plan for your life, and it's really simple. It's to take up your cross and follow him. And once you follow him, paradoxically you find your truest liberation. Because now you're liberated and free from anxiety about whether you should make this decision or that decision. You simply trust God and follow the Spirit wherever he leads, because you know that he has got In order for us to be a church that announces the gospel, we have to not only know what the gospel is, but we have to start learning. What are the cultural items? We have to start asking those questions. We have to start conducting that kind of analysis. And then we have to preach Christ crucified to destroy those cultural items. But also, in order for our mission to be effective, it's not enough for us to just announce the gospel. We have to embody it as well. We have to live it. Bishop Leslie, who I'm more quoting, and we'll continue to quote until 2020, and then maybe you won't hear about it. From me, I guess. Hopefully, we'll hear about it from each other. Um, New was a British bishop of our church. Uh, he was actually a mission, British missionary sent to our church. He became one of the founding bishops of our church. And he helped make the church a reality in 1947. And he returned to Britain in the 1970s after about 40 years of living as a missionary and, uh, and ministering in India. And when he returned, you can realize that the West was no longer a Christian place. If you read his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, it's actually really prophetic about the future of Christianity in Europe and North America. And he starts at near the end of the book, a lot of the book is analysis, but near the end of the book, he starts to sketch out how Christianity can be renewed in the West. And this is, I think, one of the most powerful passages in that section of the book. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible? That people should come to believe the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross. I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel, is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. I am, of course, not denying the importance of the many activities by which we seek to challenge public life with the gospel evangelistic campaigns, distributions of Bibles and Christian literature, conferences, and even books such as this one. But I'm saying that these are all secondary, and that they have the power to accomplish their purpose only as they are rooted in and lead back to a believing community. And I think that's what Paul means when he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you. Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul's message to the Corinthians was not just a sharing of cognitive information. He was not just sharing some ideas or facts about life. Instead, he was sharing his entire life. At cost to himself. 
Paul Whitney, he did transform his entire way of life in order to be with Paul was able to win the Corinthians to Christ, not because he was so eloquent or so persuasive, but because the pattern of his life was a demonstration of God's power and spirit's power. So what do I mean by that? Paul came to Corinth right after he preached the gospel to Athens in Acts chapter 17, which we read this morning. And Paul had essentially, prior to that, been chased out of town after town ever since he entered into Macedonia. He's fleeing for his life. And so when he arrives in Corinth, he's weak, he's tired, he's afraid for his life, he's even trembling. That's in verse 3. And the message, of, the message of the cross needs not to just be announced, it also needs to be embodied. And that's what Paul did to the Corinthians. He arrived in weakness. He lived the gospel. He demonstrated the gospel just by uh, risking his own safety and risking his future for, in order to love people he didn't even know. In this, Paul is actually imitating Christ. He's following after the example of Christ, who suffered in order to birth the new creation. Right? Christ gave up his privileges in order to save us out of love and suffer for our sake. And that's exactly what Paul did in his life, too. Paul was a Pharisee, which means he was an elite in Jewish society. He was uh, a student of Gamaliel. Uh, that means he was very educated in both the Jewish law and Greek philosophy. And Paul was a Roman citizen. In almost every way, Paul had many great advantages and privileges in him. And yet he threw it all away to follow Christ. Why? Why would he embark on such a life? Filled with traveling across huge distances, sometimes to meet with churches that were just a household in an entire city. Why would he risk his life over and over again? Being beaten within an inch, within an inch of his life multiple times, always on the ground, always looking over his shoulder, and eventually be thrown into prison for years without a trial. And the only answer is that the love of God compels him. He felt the hand of God over his, his head, just moving him out. He, he had so experienced God's love that he could not but help be loved in action towards other people. See, if you know that you are loved unconditionally by God, and if you are sure of the resurrection, that death is not the end, that nothing in life can face you. And I invite you to think about that. If there are things that you're anxious about, if there are things that uh, are worrying you, do you really believe that you are loved unconditionally by God? Ask yourself that question. Do you really believe that there is life after death? There is resurrection life after death? And, and that's actually what Paul had. That's what Paul had. That's what he talks about when he says, I boast in the Lord. His confidence is a proper confidence. It's not a confidence in himself. It's a confidence in the ability of the Lord. It's a confidence in the Lord, in the Lord that he will keep his promises, that he is good. And, that, and when you believe that, that gives you this tremendous capacity to take on suffering in order to love other people. Not because you're trying to get anything from them, not because you're trying to manipulate them or use them, you're not just being nice, surface level, you actually genuinely love them. And you simply love them. The motivation is you simply love them because they are loved by God. And if they belong to God, then they belong to you and you belong to them. Now let me be clear. Early in 1 Corinthians, Paul is very clear that he's not the one who saves the first the, the, the Corinthians. We don't save anyone in our mission. God does. And yet by God's amazing grace, he uses us as his instruments to testify to and administer his salvation. Paul's suffering, it 
in Paul is suffering in order to love the Corinthians. And that's the only credible witness. That's the only real testimony that the message of the cross is true. Humanness is we believe. It's only in Christ who really is crucified that this is possible, that this kind of life is possible, that Paul's kind of life is possible. See, if it's true that we follow a God, a king who died out of love for his enemies, and it's true that we are given his spirit, then that means that at the heart of our mission is to embody the gospel. And that means that we have to suffer out of love for our enemies as a testament to God's love for us in Christ. We have to resolve to know nothing but Jesus Christ and the crucified. That concept, or actually that person, that person, Messiah crucified, the crucified king, has to totally enter into our life and reshape our identity. And I humbly but very honestly want to say to you, I believe that in a small but real way, that is what has happened to me. Um, why, why would someone, why would anyone spend so much time uh, laboring in the CSI in North America, in North America specifically. There's no privilege here in that. There's no money here in that. Uh, in India, yes, we're a mighty church, but, but here we are, we heard earlier, 29 congregations at best. Some very small and humble. Um, it looks like foolishness to invest so much time and energy into this church. I have another job. I'm, I'm married. Hopefully we have kids. Why am I doing all this? Uh, wouldn't there be a wiser way to steward my time and attention and resources? But as Paul writes, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of the world. The only way, the only way this makes sense is if I really believe the gospel. And I hope that's my testimony to you. The only reason I would be doing any of this, like, okay, yeah, okay, Brian becomes the big leader as I was taught. Okay, big leader of what, really? Like, we're just, we're just 160 gathered in the room, according to the world, right? But in the eyes of God, we are his people. And the only reason I would do any of this is if I truly believe that the gospel is true. And that's my witness to you. That's my witness to you. And I hope that becomes the purpose of this talk is to get you to see that what we need is for you to witness to one another, you to witness to your future children, and you to witness to your neighbors through your lives, through things through the things you're giving up in order to follow God. Through the sacrifices and pain you're taking in order to obey Christ. It's only because I know I am so loved that I can love all of you as my brothers and sisters called by Him. Again, I keep saying this, we belong to one another because we belong to Him. That's what we us. And when we are pledged to one another like that, when we are united to one another like that, then we will be most truly fulfilling our mission to announce and embody the gospel to the world. Because that's what Jesus prayed. Let them all be one so that the world may know that you are sent. Let them all be one so that the world may know that you are sent. It's when the world sees our unity that they will know that Christ was sent by the Father to claim reconciliation. And that's my firm conviction. It's when we are united and committed to one another in love because of the gospel, that we will best be able to fulfill this mission that we've been talking about. This mission that is not our mission, but that is God's mission. It becomes our mission because we've been united to him. And because he has graciously brought us into his family, we're adopted children. So that's what saying so beautifully. Um, so we don't just have to announce the gospel. Like Paul, we also have to embody it. 
by being willing to suffer for the sake of the kingdom, by being willing to take on pain, by being willing to give up our privileges, by being willing to sacrifice in order to love one another and to minister to one another. And here's the danger. The reason we won't be willing to do so, one reason we won't be willing to do so, is because even after we are saved, our heart is still a perpetual factory of others. That's what I'm The heart is a perpetual, a perpetual factory of others. Even inside the church, we will keep producing idols that will try to distract us from this mission, from suffering in order to advance the kingdom of God. Except these idols will be more sophisticated. These idols will tell us, oh, we will be more effective somewhere else, somewhere where action isn't always getting in our way. Right? We will grow more in Christ somewhere else, somewhere where we don't have to navigate the difficulty or reconcile the tension of being uh, between, of being in a church where there are two different cultures, American culture and Malayalam culture, or Canadian culture and American culture. I mean, Canadian culture and Malayalam culture. Um, we, those are two different cultures. We know better than everybody else what needs to be fixed, and they're not doing it, whoever they are, right? They're not doing it. So unless they listen to us, we have to go. We don't want a church where we have to participate or talk to anyone. We want a church where we can come here to some sermon and leave out, leave out here now. These are all different idols of our hearts produced even after we've been saved. It happens. So please hear me on this. Please hear me on this. I'm not saying. It's never a valid decision to leave any particular church. You can't do it. There are real valid reasons to leave a church. But I am saying that an idol can also be the reason that you leave a church. Your idol for independence and control or advancement and status and even money sometimes if you're in the ministry. And too often, when we leave, we do so before doing the hard work of really discerning where we are. And that's why I would ask you to stand with me now. Please stand with me right now. Because I truly believe that the CSI in North America has a call placed upon it to be missionaries to North America. And I want us to close our eyes and just reflect on a few questions to discern whether we have that call. And if we have that call to pledge ourselves to one another before God, to make an oath before God, that we will commit ourselves to this vision. I know some of you guys are young, but even don't let your youth be a barrier to this vision, to committing to this vision. The harvest is plenty, guys, but the, the workers are so few. It's only been two years that I've been in Austin, but I just, we have a small congregation of college students, um, and, and some of them come from a more Pentecostal background or a marketing background, but they've been working with me and talking to Hindu and Muslim students. I've seen so much fruit being born there. And they're all teaching, we're sharing things that the insights will share. We get from New Begin or other teachers from our church, other teachers from our tradition. The harvest is plenty, but the workers are so few, and we need workers. We need co laborers for this mission of the church. So I want to spend some time with you in prayer, challenging you to ask God where He wants to place you. And specifically, is it here in this church or this mission? So please put your eyes on this. Now, I just want you guys to reflect on a few questions. First, there may be, uh, first, I just want all of you actually to ponder this. Is this gospel true? Do you really believe this gospel? Because if you think about it from the standpoint of the world, it is from fruition, actually. 
the, the 160 or so folks of us here, if we say we believe the gospel, what we are saying is that the resurrected Lord, the, the ruler of this universe, a universe which is science focused and so big that planet Earth is just a speck of dust in the vast vacuum of space, we're saying that the ruler of this entire universe, the source of all life, came is an itinerant Jewish preacher who lived 2,000 years ago, who was basically homeless, he had no place to lay his head. Uh, and he died and executed basically as, as a terrorist, as a, as a rebel against the Roman Empire. He was tortured to death. And we say that man hanging on a cross is the Lord of the universe. That we, not more than that, actually. We say that man who hung on a cross and died three days later rose again from the dead. He came back to life. Do you really believe this? And if you don't, maybe start to consider what would the world look like if it were true? And how would your life be different if you really didn't believe it was true? Second thing I want you to guess is think about a little bit here. If you say that the gospel really is true, then why aren't you living in line with it? Why aren't you living in line with it? What idol are you pursuing? What idol are you trusting to give you more happiness than the good and loving Father who gave his only son? To, if you say you believe that, if you say you believe the gospel, why are you trusting in the idol more than God? Why aren't you living in line Finally, I know there are people who are false, also. 
We ask you to pray for us. Please pray for us. And partner with us. If there's any bitterness or resentment from the past toward us, please, when we sit, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for your forgiveness. Individually, we're all justified by faith, right? That means that Simon's, that's what they said. Simultaneously, we are sinners and saints. And if we are the church, that means that as a body, we are simultaneously a church that is sinful and a church that has been sanctified. And we know at the end of time, this church will be glorified as the body of Christ and made totally beautiful. That's our confidence. So if you're called somewhere else, pray for us. Please forgive us. If you have any angry bitterness or God bless us still, so that, so that all the ends of the earth will be